Well, tonight we're going to be continuing to look uh, in our series through the book of Philippians. We're going to look at Philippians chapter 3. This is, uh, I think, just maybe one of the, a number of passages where you can sort of hear in the background Paul's having really um, meditated upon and maybe ingested Jeremiah chapter 9. And so I thought we could read that as our Old Testament reading tonight. If you don't have a Bible, Jeremiah chapter 9 is on page 637 of the Pew Bibles underneath the seats in front of you. Here, uh, Jeremiah is speaking on some similar themes we heard from this morning, these themes of Israel, uh, having followed false gods and idols and having strayed and wandered from the Lord, uh, being promised discipline in the context of exile, uh, and yet also being promised God's grace and his salvation and a reason to boast in him. So let's give our attention to God's word in the Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 9, reading verses 12 through 24. Hear now the word of the Lord. Who is the man so wise that he can understand this? To whom has the mouth of the Lord spoken that he may declare it? Why is the land ruined and laid waste like a wilderness so that no one passes through? And the Lord says, because they have forsaken my law that I set before them and have not obeyed my voice or walked in accord with it, but have stubbornly followed their own hearts and have gone after the Baals as their fathers taught them. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will feed this people with bitter food and give them poisonous water to drink. I will scatter them among the nations whom neither they nor their fathers have known, and I will send the sword after them until I have consumed them. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider and call for the mourning women to come. Send for the skillful women to come. Let them make haste and raise a wailing over us, that our eyes may run down with tears and our eyelids flow with water, for a sound of wailing is heard from Zion. How we are ruined. We are utterly shamed because we have left the land, because they have cast down our dwellings. Hear, O women, the word of the Lord, and let your ear receive the word of his mouth. Teach your daughters to lament. Teach your daughters a lament, and each to her neighbor a dirge. For death has come up into our windows. It has entered our palaces, cutting off the children from the streets and the young men from the squares. Speak, thus declares the Lord, the dead bodies of men shall fall like dung upon the open field, like sheaves after the reaper, and none shall gather them. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. As we prepare to hear more from God's word, let's turn in our hymnals to hymn 360, when in his might the Lord, hymn 360, and let's stand together and sing.
So in Jeremiah 9, we, we see that refrain throughout the Old Testament that Israel continued to think that she had a reason to boast before the Lord. And God had to continually come back and say, no, you don't. <laughs> you ultimately have only one reason to boast, and that's in me. And so after leading Israel into exile, he also leads her out to show her, his people, that it is all by grace that they are saved. And that's what that song, Psalm 126, is singing of. And it's that theme or that message that we get in Philippians chapter 3 as well. So let's turn our Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 to 11. I'm going to focus a little bit on uh, really verses 4 to uh, about 9. Uh, but we'll look at the whole passage. And uh, that's on page 981 of the Bible's uh, the Pew Bibles uh, provided for you. Let's give attention now to the reading of God's holy word. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Here ends the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it and let's go before him in prayer and ask him to do just that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this powerful passage from the pen of your servant Paul. Lord, we recognize it as the words of your apostle, the one you sent but that ultimately these are words from you for our instruction. And so we ask you to use them tonight. Use them tonight to challenge us anew, to correct us, to convict us, to comfort us, to encourage us, to nourish us, and to build up our faith as we look to Christ, whom Paul proclaims so powerfully here. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, our world is deeply concerned with questions of identity. We have things like sexual identity that we're talking about all the time, or uh, identity politics, national identity. Identity seems to be a great focus, but what do we mean 
when we're talking of identity, we've been thinking about this some in the men's study, reading through Carl Truman's book on the triumph of the modern self. And I think ultimately what we mean by identity is simply an answer to the question, who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? What is my value? What is my purpose? It's no wonder that in modern times where as a culture and as a society, at least in the Western world, we've, we've declared God as dead. We've jettisoned all the answers that used to come to us from God. That as humans, we're made in his image and have inherent value and worth just in that. That God makes us children, gives us parents, makes us a man or woman, father or mother, grandparent, that we are all creatures of the great creator, God Almighty, who values us, who created us to glorify him and who who loves us. And yet after rejecting God and the identity he gives us in his word, we're We're sort of lost nowadays, it seems, in a sea of uncertainty, moved along by the winds of our desires, by our circumstances, by our passions, by our addictions, all things that people allow to give them an identity or that they look to to grasp an identity from. And yet, by definition, any identity we create for ourselves is ultimately going to be as unstable as we are, rather than a solid ground upon which to build a life of meaning and purpose, which is what we want out of a sense of identity. Uh, we were reading in the book this week, the chapter we were discussing, it was so profound, so profoundly heart-wrenching, as it described um, a, a lesbian woman uh, married to another lesbian who found her identity as a lesbian, uh, but then her spouse decided she was no longer a woman but was now a man. It's the sort of thing that's happening in our world today. And it was so... Um, Troubling and heart-rending for this woman is she had based her whole identity in her being attracted to women, and now she was attracted to a man. And because of this decision from somebody else, she no longer had a sense of self, sense of identity. And she, you could tell she was grasping for something firm to build that on. This is the morass in which we live. And it's into this that the Bible speaks profound truth, if we can hear it, and it It shows us that God offers an identity not defined by our feelings, our passions, our desires, by our moment, by our whatever experience we've we've been through and we're going through, but instead there's an offer of an identity given to us by Almighty God, the creator of all things, that will never change. And this identity that God offers is the focus here, I think, of Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 11. Here, Paul is reminding the Philippians, this early church, and he's reminding through them, he's reminding us of the basic character or identity of the church of Jesus Christ, of what he calls here in in different terms, the true Israel. The Israel, the people of God that the the whole uh, word of God is about. And in It seems like in in the challenge of Judaizers, those who would say, no, really, if you want to be the people of God, you've got to become like us, like Jews. Paul is saying, no, that's never been 
where our identity lies. That's never been how we are the people of God. So we saw last time, instead, Paul pushes back against this sort of claim in verses 1 to 3 where he, he shows us that the church, the true Israel, the people of God are a community worshiping a community. Specifically, a community worshiping the Trinity, the triune God, where he, he, he actually fronts the Spirit and Christ as a focus of our worship in the church of Jesus Christ in contrast to the Judaizers who would claim to worship the Father. Verses 1 to 3, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. I write the same things to you. It is no trouble to me. It is safe for you. So these are things that he expects his people to know, sort of to be obvious on the one hand. He says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh probably pejoratives for those who are claiming that you must be circumcised into Judaism to be a true follower of Christ. He says, for we are the circumcision, meaning true Israel, who worship by the Spirit of God or worship the Spirit of God, as we talked about when we looked at this passage a few weeks ago, and glory or boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. But there, at verse 3, there's this dramatic shift. We talked about how the church is a community, a, a people. We, we looked at that even from 1 Corinthians 12. We talked about we're, we're a diverse people, but we come together and have this unity in Christ. And here he's talking about the church as a community. We, 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 we. And then look at verse 4. Though I, myself, have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. There's this shift to first-person singular verbs. What's the point? I think the point is that Paul is showing us that while true Israel is a community, it is a people of God, that's not to say that it's made up. That's not to say that it's not made up of individuals. That there isn't this individual component to our faith. That on one hand, we are people of God, but on the, on another, in another way, we are persons of faith. Or to put it another way, in verses 1 to 3, true Israel is a community, worshiping a community, but that's only half the passage and that's only half the message. The other half of the passage and the message is that we are not just a community, but we are individuals who are individually partakers of a new identity, a new economy in Christ. And that it's as individuals partaking of this new identity that we come together and become people of God. So as we look at this passage, I want us to consider two points this evening. First of all, this community, this worshiping community's confessors, individuals, and then this community's confession. What is it that each confessor must confess or boast in? First of all, the community's confessors. True Israel, the church, is a community, but that's not at the expense of being individuals. Individuals don't get swallowed up in the community. Instead, the community is composed of individuals who all profess their own personal relationship with an individual, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Every member of the true Israel, every member of the church must be able to confess we must be able to confess not only that Jesus is the Savior, not only that Jesus is our Savior, but that Jesus is my Savior. Alec Motier, in his commentary on Philippians, 
says it this way. He says, if the we of verse 3 is to have any meaning, that is to say, if we, the Christian church, are truly to worship by the Spirit of God, glory in Christ, and reject fleshly confidence, it can happen only when you and he and she and I find, possess, and treasure Christ for our very own selves. This is basically what Paul is getting at in Romans chapter 10 as well. And over and over again, I've tried to drive home this point. You might be tired of hearing it. That whenever you read in the New Testament, especially in the letters to the churches, whenever you read you, it's a good chance that you can assume it's plural, that it's a plural you. We don't distinguish plural and singular yous in English, and so it makes it sometimes, I think, confusing. We can read certain passages as way too individualistic when Paul is addressing you, the plural church. Romans 10 actually is a nice exception to that. Here, the yous are all singular. I think indicating this individual faith that we must all have, this individual relationship with Christ, this individual confession we must have of Christ. Look at uh, Romans 10, verse 9. If you have your Bibles, you can flip back over there. Because, he says, if you, singular, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your singular heart that God raised him from the dead, you, singular, will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And I think this is important for us to remember. Because nowadays in the church, there is, I think, often an emphasis on community. I mean, I even in, in my driving home, <laughs> that point, that these plurals are often there. They're, I think there's a healthy move to push back against our Western individualism, our, our temptation, I think, especially even maybe as Americans, to adopt a sort of cowboy Christianity. That I can run off and take me and my Bible out in the wilderness alone and that I'm the church. And, and it's, it's good for us to push back against that and say, no, no, to be a follower of Christ, we're called to be part of the church. I think it's interesting in the end of Mark, uh, I was reading this the other day, and it says, believe and be baptized and you will be saved. And uh, we often get into issues of baptism and believer baptism and all that. It seems to me, I wonder if that's not a reference to believe and join the body of Christ. That salvation is meant to be an individual experience that leads to a corporate commitment. But this idea of focusing on community, I think, is, is actually kind of becoming trendy or has become trendy. I, I think post-modernity has sort of reacted against the individualistic mindset of modernism. And so this idea of solidarity, of the common good, is more and more hip, prevalent, talked about. Maybe why uh, socialist and communist politics are ascendant in the world around us, that there's whether or not they're good or bad, there's at least a corporate nature that's recognized in them, and that's appealing to many people. And it's appealing to speak of community even within the church. So Stanley Grenz, a late 20th century theologian, his systematic theology inserts the idea of community right in the title. Theology, he calls it, for the community 
of God. And that emphasis can be good in many ways, but when the church becomes all about community, we can lose sight of the challenge or the reality that it is also has an individual, faith has an individual component. We can press that truth and emphasize that too far and sacrifice the individual nature of Christian faith as well. The church is not only a people, it is also many persons who each have an individual knowledge, encounter, faith in Jesus Christ. And we see this in Paul in verses 8 to 10. And notice the I, singular, first person singular pronouns here. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, or as my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. It's important for us not only to understand the church, uh, it's, not, it's important for us to understand this point, not only uh, to understand the church, that we are a people made up of persons, but also to get the significance of the gospel. This, this idea of the church's community or the focus of uh, the scriptures on a community has, has even seeped into theologians redefining certain terms like N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright is, uh, again, a late, uh, he's current uh, theologian, and he's tried to encourage people to rethink certain categories. Sometimes it's a fresh way to think about things, but sometimes it's unhelpful. And it loses sight, I think, of certain truths that he's trying to push back against. And he says the gospel is not about how people get saved, but the gospel is the return of Israel from exile. Now, the return of Israel from exile was good news. That was the good news the prophets proclaimed often. But like when Israel gets brought out of the exile from Egypt, is that good news for the Canaanites? No, it meant judgment for them. Israel returning from exile is not good news unless you know that you are part of Israel. And isn't that what Paul is getting at here? How is it that we can know that we are the circumcision, the true Israel? It's when we have come to a place of individual confession of faith in Jesus Christ. Or to put it another way, the gospel is not good news if we're only speaking corporately about Israel or the church as being saved. It's only good news when it also speaks of how individually you and I can be part of that saved church. So here in Philippians 3, 1 to 11, we see true Israel as a community, worshiping a community, but that community is made up of individual confessors who boast or glory in Christ. And the application of this first point, if you are not a member of a church, if you're not recognized by others as part of that community, you have to ask yourself the question, are you part of it? You claim that I'm, I'm a member of that family, but nobody in the family knows who you are or claims you back. Right? There, there is this importance of being part of the community of faith. If you're not yet a member of the church, if you're not yet a follower of Christ in the context of his church, don't put that off. But there's also a challenge here, I think, for those of us who are members, who are members in good standing on the roles of this church or another church where the gospel is preached. 
That's great. It's important, I think. But are you cultivating your individual walk with Christ as well? How do we do that? Well, there are many ways. Praying regularly. Spending time in God's Word. Studying God's Word as we study it together here, but also individually. Being a disciple and discipling others. Especially if you've been walking in the faith a long time and you're feeling stagnant. I, I would encourage considering looking for someone to disciple, to, someone to share the gospel with. Sometimes it's through teaching that we actually grow most. We are called to be part not only of a community that worships a community, but we're called to be individual confessors within that, those who confess Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. So the church identity is a community, worshiping community, but specifically a community of individual confessors. And then what is it that each individual confessor must confess? And this is the, the bulk of the passage I want us to consider, the community's confession. Simply put, the confession that each of us individually must have is a new boast. You could say a new identity, right? A new basis for your value and your confidence, your hope. And that's based in an utterly new economy of identity and value. See, Paul goes on to speak of being in Christ, and he starts using clearly economic language of gain or loss. You could say that this passage is, you know, Paul's writing in accountant speak. So, so let's unpack that a little bit. Verse 7, he says, but whatever gain, that's an accounting term, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss, another accounting term, for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Count being another accounting term, not surprisingly. Reckon them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Why talk about identity in economic terms? Don't we do the same thing over in China? They have what they're calling the social credit system. It's all about identity. Who you are, what you're part of, and how that rates in the social hierarchy. Isn't that all what identity is all about? Is how do I fit in the social hierarchy? And how do I ascend to the place of value and importance that I feel a need for, that I long for in that social credit system, even if we don't call it that? It's a question of value. And Paul here says, when you come to Christ, when you enter into communion and union with him, it, it, it is an utterly new identity. It's like going from one economy to a completely different one. An old econo economy, an economic system, and we could call this the economy of law, and entering into a new economy, the economy of grace. Now, there are similarities between these. You know, the goal of both economies that Paul's kind of playing with this analogy here, the goal of both of them is the same thing. The promise of a future. A hope of everlasting life. A, a, a finding a way to be right before God. Look at verse 11. 
he kind of gets at this at the very end, that by any means possible, I may attain. This is, this is what we're longing for, right? The, to the resurrection from the dead. Meaning that this life is not all there is, that we are valuable so that we have an eternity to look forward to. And, and in both economies, the, the means to that end of that promised future hope, the resurrection from the dead, uh, life everlasting, the means to that end, like, like in our economies, the means to succeeding in the economy is money and wealth. Well, in this analogy that Paul is making here, the, the means to success is righteousness in both of these. Obedience to the law of God. A righteousness before him. And look, he, he talks about that in verse 9. Uh, his hope is, uh, he, he, he considers all things as lost uh, for, uh, in order that he might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So the contrast here is not uh, one economy thinks righteousness is good and the other thinks unrighteousness is good. It's not a contrast like that. Both recognize a need for righteousness before God so that we have his approval, so that we can enter his presence and not be consumed by his holiness in our sin. And we should note that the, the whole economy of the law that Paul is describing here is not wrong in and of itself. In fact, it's the way God created the world. This is the way things worked in the garden as God made it. We call it the covenant of works or the covenant of life in our shorter catechism that God made with Adam. And shorter catechism question and answer 12 says, When God had created man, he entered into a covenant of life with him upon condition of perfect obedience, forbidding him to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon pain of death. Righteousness is by what Adam would do. And this focuses on the negative, what happens if... Adam breaks the law, which we all know he did. That's why it focuses on that. Because after Genesis 3, the whole history of the, 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 the world and everything recounted in Scripture is all playing out. <laughs> what, what happens if we break that law or if Adam breaks that law? But according to the covenant of life God made, operating under the economy of law, if he hadn't eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as he was told not to, if he hadn't done that and he had obeyed God's other command, which was to eat of every other tree, eventually he would have eaten of the tree of life and been confirmed in righteousness and eaten and lived forever. As God says in Genesis 3 when he says now that he's in sin, you can't let him eat of the tree or he'll be confirmed in unrighteousness and live forever like this. So the economy of law is part of God's created order. It's not wrong in and of itself. The problem is, ever since Adam, sin is so pervasive, destructive, and it affects our whole person that even righteousness that we might attain in that old economy of law is like loss in the new economy of grace. That's what Paul's getting at here. Paul's saying here, in the economy of law, my piggy bank was pretty full. Uh, if you want somebody under the economy of law who, who was like the billionaires, right, <laughs> at the top of the heap, my savings account, it would have blown your mind. Not only was I born into money, I was a 
trust fund kid, right? That's what he says in verses 4 to 5. Circumcised on the eighth day, meaning he's from a devout household of the people of Israel. This is the chosen people. He, he could trace his bloodline to the people of God in the Old Testament. Of the tribe of Benjamin. Well, Benjamin was that special son of Jacob. So it was a special tribe. And it was the one tribe that stuck with Judah when the tribe split. It was the tribe where the first king Saul was chosen from. Wow, what a pedigree. Hebrew of Hebrews. Probably meaning that he was not just ethnically Hebrew, but that he could speak Hebrew, unlike many of his countrymen. Hebrew of Hebrews. But he says, not only was I born into money, I added to it, I invested it carefully. And that's in verses 5, the second half to 6. As to the law of Pharisee, I meticulously kept the law. In fact, I kept more than the law just so I wouldn't break the law. As to the religious zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. I was so zealous, it changed my life. I lived out my faith. As to righteousness, by keeping the law of Moses, he says, I was blameless. I kept it, and I offered sacrifices when I made mistakes and needed to. If anyone has claims to be wealthy in the economy of the law, Paul says, I have more in verse 4. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then there's this great word in verse 7. But. But. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. How could being a Pharisee of Pharisees, be lost in the economy of grace. Look how hard it was for Saul to come to faith. How could being a persecutor of the church be lost in the economy of grace? That becomes pretty obvious, right? You're persecuting the very one who offers you all the riches you could ever want or need. He says, whatever gain I had, whatever credit was to my account in the economy of law, I counted as loss, as a debit in the economy of grace. In fact, I counted all other things as, and I love the, the end there, the end of verse eight. I, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. One way to translate that word the NIV translates it garbage. The Holman Christian Standard Bible translates it filth. I think maybe the King James Version gets closest. It translates it dung. I count it as dung. The word there probably has a similar semantic range that certain four-letter words that we might use have in our language. I, I like the Greek word for it. I, I, th I think you'll like it too. <laughs> he says, I counted it skubala. Skubala, garbage heap of kitchen scraps and dung and ex excrement, is being a Pharisee, a, a keeper of the law of Moses. That's strong words. Those are strong words. That's strong language. Not, not because those things are bad in themselves. Being Jewish from a devout family is great. 
being a devoted, zealous follower of God's law, great. But he says, but when compared to the surpassing worth of simply knowing Christ, scubala, dung. Compared to the value of knowing Christ Jesus, and he says not just knowing Christ Jesus, but knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord, as my God in verse 8. Like two economies here, but different. Not only does Paul call his righteousness by law scubala, rubbish, but he actually also calls it loss or a debit in accounting terms. He's saying, going from the economy of law to the economy of grace, all the riches I had, it, it, was, like, it was like now with what's going on over in Europe, walking into Washington, D.C. with this huge account full of Russian rubles. Not only can you not buy a single thing in D.C. with rubles, you're pegged as possibly for the Russians. That's what Paul's describing here. Why is it that he would use such strong terminology? It's because since the fall, friends, like Isaiah 64, 6 says, we have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment or like filthy rags. Note that in Christ, God does enable us to bear good fruit. He delights in that good fruit. He delights in the good works that are wrought in us by his Holy Spirit, which he gives to us to, to bear good fruit in our lives. It's not that he receives those as filthy rags, but anything that we do and anything we contribute is still tainted by sin, sinfulness of the heart, sinfulness of the motivations. And while we continue to struggle in our own sin, our righteousness can never be perfect enough or constant enough or from pure enough motives of heart to merit salvation or everlasting life, to count in the economy of God's grace. Isn't this Jesus' point in the Sermon on the Mount? You've followed the law of Moses and you're blameless? Good. You haven't committed adultery, have you lusted? Good, you haven't murdered. Have you been angry and hated your brother? This is why righteousness in the economy of the law to Paul is scubala or a loss in the economy of grace. So thinking, so thinking that there's anything valuable or meritorious about them that we ought to cling to, that God ought to honor our righteousness in our sin, uh, is sort of absurd, and that's what he's pushing back against those who would say, hey, you're in this new economy of grace, but you need to fulfill the law of Moses by being circumcised, by becoming as much like a Jew as you can. And yet to think that, to think that somehow doing those things would further ingratiate us to God, it's, it would be like uh, your friend owes you 100 bucks, and they come to you and they say, here, I'm going to give you 200, and they hand it to you, and it's monopoly money. Wait a minute. <laughs> That doesn't not only pay the debt, that's an insult that you think you're actually doing me a favor by giving me more? Our righteous deeds can never meet the requirement of God's perfection. So if we look at them, if we look to them to add to our credit, to give us something that God should recognize, be grateful for to us, they add to our debits instead. So we've seen the economy of law and economy of grace. They have the same goal, the same end, the glory of God and our eternal life with them. They have the same means to that end. Righteousness, perfect obedience. So what's the difference? 
The difference is whose righteousness is our boast, whom we confess. That's what he says in verse 9. Having righteousness, not my own, that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. And I love that he calls it singular, the righteousness. Because it is none other than the righteousness of Christ, one man, the God-man, credit to the account of all those who have faith in him. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. In the economy of grace, we're given Christ's righteousness as a free gift, as it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 9, those verses, those verses so familiar to us. Again, starting with that wonderful word, but. But God, being rich in mercy, after talking about us being dead in our trespasses and sins, sons of disobedience, children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Or taking Paul from here, in Jeremiah chapter 9, so that no one may boast in themselves, but may boast only in the Lord, in Jesus Christ. So our church is a community of confessors who confess and boast in Jesus Christ and his righteousness, credited to us by faith in this new economy of grace. Let's take a couple minutes and just apply this second point. We need to repent. First of all, we need to repent of our sin. If righteousness according to the law is loss and scubala, then what is sin? Well, that should terrify us. It's even more. It's destructive loss that brings judgment. We must repent of sin. If you're not a believer, not a follower of Christ, if you're a covenant child who's not yet professed faith, it's not enough to just be in a community Sunday morning or evening. We each need, as we talked about in the first point, a personal, individual repentance and faith. We need to turn each of us in grateful faith to Jesus Christ. We not only need to repent of sin, there's a certain sense in which Paul, I think, would challenge us here to repent of making our own righteousness or ways in which we, we try. Not, not of loving our neighbor or doing good in and of itself. We don't need to repent of that but of our own self-righteousness, ways we think that in doing X, Y, or Z, we are gaining some credit before the Lord, when really it's a debit. When we begin to trust ourselves in our own works, rather than by faith, lean on Christ. This is so easy for us to slip into because it's so natural. It's creational. It's how we were made in the first Adam. So we need to repent of sin and self-righteousness. Or our own righteousness. I like how Tim Keller in The Prodigal God describes it. He says it this way. He says, to find God, we must repent of the things we have done wrong. But if that is all you do, you may remain just an elder brother. To truly become Christians, we must also repent of the reasons we ever did anything right. Pharisees only repent of their sins, but Christians repent for the very roots of their righteousness too. We must learn how to repent of the sin under 
all our other sins and under all our righteousness, the sin of seeking to be our own Savior and Lord. We must admit that we've put our, our ultimate hope and trust in things other than God and that in both our wrongdoing and our right doing, we have been seeking to get around God or get control of God in order to get hold of those things. It's instead the constant call of Scripture and the call here of Philippians 3 verses 1 to 11 to set aside the claim we have to my own works and take up a claim to have my own Savior, Lord, Jesus Christ. To set aside the claim to my own righteousness through the law and to take up the claim of Christ's righteousness from God as a gift by faith. Will it mean the good life? Will it mean that in this new economy of grace we will be rich in the eyes of the world? Not always in the short term, right? Paul makes this point down in verses 10 and 11, that I may know him, wow, and the power of his resurrection, yes. You know, the world gets that desire, the power of the resurrection, wow, and may share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Being united to Christ in the power of his resurrection often means suffering, but this is part of attaining the glory that follows, the resurrection of the dead. So as a worshiping community, each of us personally knowing Christ, having faith in him, let us rejoice in the riches we have in Jesus Christ. As members of this new economy of, this, of salvation by grace, let us confess Christ as our own Savior, and let us do so then together as a confessing community. It's interesting. Christians aren't those who don't boast, according to Paul here. Christians are those who boast only of the Lord, who boast diligently in Christ, in who he is, in his righteousness, that through faith we can be found in him, not having a righteousness of our own through the law, but perfect righteousness, the perfect righteousness of Christ's faithfulness, credited to us by faith in him, knowing him, the power of his resurrection, united to him, in his sufferings and in his death, so that we might also be united to him in his resurrection glory. Think on these things as we go forth boasting in Christ as God's people. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for these words of Paul and this challenge for us to reevaluate how we think of ourselves and the good we see ourselves or think ourselves or know ourselves to have done Lord, we thank you that no matter how good we may be, that we have a perfect righteousness before you, offered to us as a gift. Jesus Christ, may we cling to that. May we claim that. May we boast in him and in him alone. In his name we pray.